You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everyone. I am on the road here this weekend. I will be on the road next week as well. Just wanted to point out one thing for everybody. This is a busy time of year for, for me. For you all that are in the field, great time to you know start to assess your property. Great time post-holiday season to start to look at your trail cameras, evaluate that data to look at the volume and number of deer just yesterday was our last day of hunting season for, for myself here in New York State. My son and I were out hunting, and we had a chance at, I don't know, a whole bunch of deer. And he's crossbow hunting, so that always th- makes things a little more difficult. we got to get him in with, with range. And, you know, he's 40 and in. He didn't want me to shoot the gun in the, in the, uh, in the box blind, so we were somewhat limited. But, you know, he had some opportunities at some deer, and we were doing age classing you know, across the landscape. I was trying to show him just dynamically the different uh, doe herds in the area. You know, I, I have these deer so well identified. We talk about how they socialize and, you know, it's just interesting kind of understanding the dynamics of the deer in the landscape, watching them utilize the food plots and move through the landscape like we had kind of designed and laid out. And I kind of started to describe to him the process that I go through when I'm looking at the landscape. And it's it's really interesting when you integrate animals in the landscape. And I think that's a, a topic we're going to get into today. I've got a new guest on. He's local to me. I've been on his farm and property. I think it'll be an interesting chat, a little bit offbeat for some of the deer stuff that we typically get into, but I think there's some overlap here, and and I think it'll be important to kind of discuss that. Hey, Jacob, are you on the line? Yeah, John. Okay. So I'll just give folks just a brief background with you. Uh, You are a local, I'll just call you a farmer if that's okay. Uh, Jacob Newton and your your farm is called Hillside Farms. You're south of me, and um, so we're not too far away from each other. And I've had a chance to be on your farm and kind of look at your operation just from a visual standpoint and kind of listen to you talk. And, you know, my focus here is to help people learn more about, you know, I, I don't want to say sustainable operations, but operations that, that think about, you know, more of the regenerative side of either farming, cattle, you know, the integration of livestock, you know, on, on our land and being stewards of our land. And I think you're going to be a good voice of reason for folks that are thinking about, 
you know, I want to introduce cattle or pigs or poultry. And, you know, maybe there's ways that we can do this where we want to have an active hobby farm or farm and considering, you know, some of the inputs or requirements to get, get you moving and, and what actually functionally works. And I think that's kind of an important topic and you know all about this stuff. So I want to just quickly just allow you to introduce yourself and so people know who you are. Thank you. My wife and I own Hillside Farms. We're located in uh, uh, Truxton, New York, so kind of just east of the Finger Lakes region. Um, We raise uh, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, um, which includes broiler chickens, laying hens, turkeys, and then we also do a pastured and uh, forested pork. Um, We really try to think of our farm cyclically instead of linearly instead of on a linear scale um, we really try to um, incorporate multi-species so diversity and then we're really trying to reduce any synthetic inputs we we don't use any synthetic inputs Um, uh, we're really trying to um, make the cycle of the biological activity in the soil which would give us good fertility, then that fertility would give us uh, good yields per acre on our pastures, and then that would result in a good eating experience, so a good product, because in all truths, we're food producers when it comes down to it, so um, we're using this this farm to produce a good nutrient-dense food, and we're pretty young, we're pretty new at this, we're, see, we're in our sixth year um, on, on the farm, we purchased it December 2017. Uh, we started selling beef in 2018, and then we incorporate uh, we incorporated poultry and pork uh, in 2020. Um, and we were really intensive management as far as we're moving animals on our pastures, and then we're trying to have them on pasture as long as we can throughout the growing season, and then into some dormant times. And then we uh, transitioned to deep bedding pack barns um, in the winter, and uh, that's kind of that's kind of our operational overview. So let's let's look at it large scale. And you know, your farm is broken up essentially into sections and you've managed, you know, paddocks or for folks that don't understand fencing operation pieces of this that fundamentally allow you to move your cattle in different regions. And you have a very technical approach to doing this. One of the symptoms, you know, I've seen on the landscape is overgrazing, and that's been a problem for a lot of these different operations. They're not thinking you know, holistically about how to maintain uh, a, a good status of crops and basically not consuming everything. You go to some of these pastures and, you know, there, there's no vegetation at all. In fact, you know, they've expanded their operations. So they're not just in, you know, rangeland areas, they're, you know, pushing in the woodlots and essentially it's barren ground. So I want to talk a little bit how you have ranged your farm and then your technique for, you know, moving your operation. And we'll just stick with cattle for now and how that's benefited your soil and what results have you seen both in the cattle and in the soil and related crops? So when we purchased our, so we, so we have an 80 acre parcel um, and then 153 acre parcel, the 80 acre parcel we purchased 2017 and that was just conventionally grazed. Um, there was about 26 acres in pasture, 30 in the hay field. And those 26 acres, the cows are just released in the spring and, you know, put in the barn in the fall. Um, so like you said, uh, overgraze, we call it grazing the roots. When you're looking to optimal graze grass, you want it to have 
two to three collars, which are leaves coming off the stem. Um, and you usually see that, you know, first week of May in our area. Um, if, if the plant has reached that uh, two and a half collars, then it's absorbing enough sunlight to produce photosynthesis and sugars in which they don't need energy from the roots. Now, if you get below that two and a half collars, you're going to start grazing your roots because you're going to be pulling energy out of the soil to grow that plant instead of using photosynthesis. So with our management, <clears throat> we're moving the cows every day, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes twice a day, especially in the fast growing season. So May to June and then, you know, September, October, when we get some fall rains and we're letting that paddock rest for anywhere from 30 to 45 days. So we're really hitting it intensively as well with the cattle. So tight groups, um, we're doing anywhere from like this summer, we were doing around 75 cow units, which would be almost 75,000 pounds. Our cow units are about a thousand pounds on an acre and a half uh, every 24 hours. So if we had fast growth pace of grass, we cut that down into three quarter acre and then move them every 12 hours. So with that said, our, our farm is set up with a, a perimeter fence pretty much around, um, we have five big meadows. And then um, we use temporary electric fencing, uh, poly braid wire on reels. So we can actually adjust each paddock with what's going on as far as moisture, sunlight length, so time of year. And then what we could see, you know, um, what we could plan ahead as far as on our grazing charts, you know, we had 45 days rest here. So we have, a, so we can slow these cows down, even confine them a little more because that, that sword is grown back really well. And we could take it down a little more because we're going to have 45 days again until we hit it. So our operation is kind of like an artist, you know, we have a blank canvas, which is that perimeter fence. And then based on weather time of year and how the growing season has been going, we can really paint a different picture every rotation on how big we give the paddocks to the animals and then how long the rest is. And then another thing too, we really try to graze um, a particular area a different time of year. So if we release the cattle out of the barns in May on let's say paddock A this year, we're going to do it on paddock D next year so that we're rotating different times as well. That's interesting. So a part of this is you're observing the landscape and you're reserving yourself to understand kind of this rotation philosophy, but at the same time, you're being you know fairly active in your observations and those observations go back to the plants. And I guess the question I always have asked myself is when you're talking about units or, you know, number of cattle in the landscape, there's a, a measurement, so to speak, where, you know, you're not consuming too much, but you're allowing the, the animal to ingest, you know, the right amount of food or the volume of food that you think they should normally consume. What's the formula there? And I think that's something that, you know, I don't fully appreciate, especially in your operation. How does it work where it's almost optimized and the rotational piece of it integrated into that and, you know, hourly usage, et cetera, based upon, like you said, uh, climatic conditions, et cetera, that impact the animal. Maybe just go through some of that strategy and philosophy, you know, surrounding just their consumption rates and, and just how you measured, you know, basically the, the herd density in association with the landscape. 
Yeah. So as far as forages, everything's measured off dry matter. So we're looking to, to give our cattle, our brood cows, our mother cows, and then our larger steers about 28 pounds of dry matter feed per day. So that would, you could measure that by going out and cutting a square foot of um, forage and then you're drying it down to, you know, sub 8% moisture. And then you can figure out what your dry matter material is in that square acre. Then you can figure it out or square foot. And then you could multiply that to get your acres. That's real technical. We look at uh, the sword height. So if our grasses, um, let's say are 18 inches, we're looking to graze six inches, um, you know, 30% trample, maybe six inches, another 30% and then leave a six inch stand, the final 30%. So you're looking to graze a third, trample a third, which putting carbon back down to the soil and then leave a third. Um, that'll allow for optimal um, surface area on that plant to regrow where you're not knocking it down. Like we talked about before, like a putting green, and you're leaving plenty of leaf there to be a solar collector, make that sugar grow back to its optimal stage. But then you also don't want to let it grow too long where it's producing a seed head because it's, it's, it's peak maturity. It's made all that energy, got that stem high enough to make the seed head, and then you're losing um, nutritional value at that point. Yeah. Then we're all... Oh, go ahead. No, no, it's it's very interesting. And no, keep keep going with this. I I think you're you're going on a good path. So then, um, so that's that's our observation of the land and the grasses. Then also, we're going to observe the cattle. We're selecting genetics here to get good grass finished cows off of um, our pastures. So mainly, we went to a red Angus genetics. This is going to be a smaller frame animal, so shorter leg, bigger belly looks kind of like a, a walking propane tank. That's what you want, a big rumen in there to hold a lot of grass. You want l- small bone structures, so they're lower to the ground, and that means they're going to put on a little more weight. With that, we're looking at the animal. The left side of the animal is where the rumen is. We want that nice and, you know, puffed out all the time. We don't want to see any sinking in where we can see their hip bones because that means they're short on forage. And then also we're monitoring their manure. We want it like almost a pumpkin pie consistency. You don't want it too liquidy and you don't want it too solid. That means your protein-carbohydrate mix ratio is correct if you get a good pumpkin pie consistency um, when they manure. I was talking to a soil scientist a few years ago, and they were talking about cattle for some reason, and I don't even know how this came up. But one of the questions that came up to me was, you know, have you looked at, the time it takes for fecal matter to decompose. So these cow pies that you're talking about, you know, a measure of success may be at least in the microbial populations and, you know, above, you know, some of the dung beetles, et cetera, you know, how long those stay in the landscape and maybe a scaling of this. And I don't know if you've paid attention to this over time, but as you continue to graze these soils and, you know, utilize your grazing trampling type uh, similar to the bison on, on the landscape, have you noticed a decrease in the time it takes for, you know, these cow pies to somewhat deteriorate? Have you noticed that on your, on your particular property? Yeah. So we definitely um, are very observant of our cow manure pies. You know, we're always breaking them open to see what kind of life we have in there. And we don't worm the cattle 
one reason we don't worm the cattle is because that pesticide, that dewormer, that's going to kill all microbes as well in that manure. It's going to, you know, um, it's pretty much just going to sterilize it. Right. So you're not going to get the breakdown you want. When we've built up our um, leaf litter, you know, so our soil coverage now, our, our swords are much um, higher population, so more dense. And then we're noticing in that 30 to 40 day rotation, when we go back, we, we rarely see manure anywhere. And just because it's been consumed, um, it also is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be sterilized by the uh, sun. Um, the sun's going to uh, help break down anything that needs to be broken down there. So we're reducing, reducing any pathogens for the cows, but we're really seeing a lot of dung beetle activity, um, earthworms, and then also fly larva. Um, so we don't we don't treat for flies either because, I, you know, we try to think everything has a niche in this ecosystem. So we'd rather not kill something. We'd rather manage the cows as far as move them a lot or get them in shade cover uh, when it's really hot to reduce those fly um, stresses. So we are we're seeing really good breakdown of our, our manure patties. And then as we go into winter in those last couple paddocks we're on. You know, they'll, they'll sit kind of dormant as all the um, microbes, insects kind of go dormant as well. But come spring, that last paddock we went to, when we get to it on our first rotation, once again, the earthworms, the insects, the microbes have taken over and really broken down that paddy. Is there any tricks that you've employed at least to keep, you know, the flies down on your particular farm? That's always an issue with, with uh, folks that raise cattle, et cetera. Any, any tricks of the trade there? Biggest thing is just for us is um, just management intensive grazing. So we're moving them. Uh, and luckily, our furthest paddock um, from point A to B, as far as um, east side to west side of the farm, is about a mile and a half. So when we do some of our big cattle drives, we're really getting away from those um, most recent manure paddies. Some other things you can do where you're not – using synthetics is you can just do some, uh, some fly sticky traps. Uh, it's kind of a big system, like a two by two paper that you put right next to the watering tank, because that's where there's going to be moisture and that's going to attract flies. And then, um, we're not to it yet, but some, uh, farms like us, they incorporate their layer program. So they're bringing the, the laying hens behind the cows for three days. So you're, you, if cows if cows are in paddock A, three days later the hens will be in paddock A. That's because that's the um, life cycle of the fly. It's becoming it's coming out of the pupa stage to the insect. So you can graze that with the chickens on um, day three. Um, that's down the road for us as we increase our laying hen uh, capacity. Yeah, and I think that's a good you know introduction where you've got this overlap of animals across the grazing area where you have this rotational pattern amongst animals. And I think, you know, I thought that was interesting uh, topic that we had talked about when I was on your farm there. So, you know, something for folks to consider if they're interested in this and, you know, find it, you know, advantage to their farm. There's, there's opportunities where, you know, you, you have smart individuals like, you know, Jacob and, you know, maybe you're, you're going down the road of historical grazing and, and you're thinking a little bit differently here. All right, let's, um let's start moving a, a little bit further down to actually just, you know, looking at the animal itself. And, you know, we talked earlier about the nutritional health benefits and 
this is why your operation stands out to me is, you know, you're, you're quite considered the animal itself, right? It's essentially part of your family for a period of time, and you're taking care of it as such, and you want the best for that animal. But the net output, obviously, is food. And when we started this, we kind of got into food. And the one thing I wanted to, to play off with is, you know, a lot of times, you know, we don't recognize where our food comes from. And I know that's a big part of your business, but it's, it's relative to anybody who's, you know, taking, you know, food in the field. And that includes deer hunters as well, is where's your food originating and, and how is it cared for? You know, what's it involved in or it involving itself, you know, and what environment it's a part of and, and how, do, how that affects the health and well-being of that particular animal. When I was on your farm, I was extremely impressed with your growth rates, you know, looking at the sheen, the coat of the animal, you know, we talked a little bit about the brisket fat. You know, can you just explain when you're looking at, a, at a, your type of cattle, like what are, you, what are you trying to see in an animal that shows, you know, pristine image or, you know, physiology state that, that meets your kind of quota of, of what looks good for you? So we're, we're really looking for visually, you know, we like a good flat back that just usually is key for good confirmation, good skeletal structure. We're looking for a big round stomach room and belly area. We're also looking for, um, hoof resilience. So, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the American breeding over the last century is kind of, um, then more towards weaning weights, you know, um, calf calving ease, and we got away from resilience resiliency in the actual brood cow. So um, we rarely have it now. We've uh, culled a couple, but if we see any sort of uh, hoof rot or issues with um, with walking uh, on some of our hilly areas or near um, some brambles where they can step, you know, we kind of cull for that. So we're looking for a good solid hoof. And then um, we're looking for good tail fat, which if you could envision where the tail comes off the animal, you're going to have like three to five ripples if there's fat there. If they're storing fat there, that means they're putting intermuscular fat on in their ribeye, in their loins. And then that'll also lead to a good cantaloupe-sized brisket. Um, and then those are signs of a good, of a well-managed, uh, well-nourished animal. So if we can get our brood cows to look like that, then their offspring at, you know, from 20 to 24 months, our steers, our heifers, um, they're going to be pulling those traits as well. So we can uh, really look at those for slaughter um, when we're going to select an animal. So just an overlap for deer and something that I'll just relay is some of the same characteristics that you just relayed to us were, when I did my intro, these are the things I was showing my son is we're looking at the brisket, you know, we're looking at the belly or belly fat, you know, kind of flank area, you know, in, in your comparative, you know, that, that straight flat back. Again, this is for age class and maturity, but we're looking at the animal's physical state and health. And a lot of times it's looking at the, in this time of years, the size of those rumps, the, the volume of fat content in those particular areas. It just kind of shows the, the status and health of that particular deer. That's really relative to, you know, both sides is coin of, you know, of, of, of us trying to, you know, grow and develop, you know, quality animals, et cetera. Uh, you know, yours being a little more controlled, you know, mine being a little more wild on the landscape. So I want to go down another road with you and focus a little more on, you know, other options. And, and you have poultry on your landscape. And I hear a lot of people talk about adding, you know, chicken litter or chicken manure, whatever you want to call it, um, on the, on the properties and, you know, obviously the manure we just talked about with cattle, 
you know, I have like a mini composting operation and, you know, I'm doing additives and I wanted to mention, and I don't mean to distract the conversation where I was going, but one thing you do is you do supplemental feed and we just did a podcast on supplemental feeding deer, but I know you've supplemental feed your animal and what is ingested in comes out the animal. So those nutrients or minerals that are in that manure, manure is just manure until you add minerals to it. So if you think about it that way, you're doing seaweed extracts or, you know, things of that nature, you know, that is ingested in the animal, promoting the health of the animal and extracting, you know, in the landscape and providing benefit to, like we talked about earlier, the soils. So I want to, not to distract that point, but I think it's an important topic. But poultry, the same thing applies, you know, manure is just manure. And, you know, it really depends on what you're providing as a feed source to that animal. So can you go over a little bit your kind of poultry operation and, just how do you do that on the landscape? So, um, like I said, we were selling beef starting in 2018 and then, um, going into, uh, spring of 2020, um, that winter time, we always make a sit down. Um, how are we going to evolve our business here? Um, how are we going to improve sales or marketing? Uh, so we were doing well with the beef and then we said, you know what? we have this client list. So let's offer poultry and pork as well. Cause you know, that's kind of the next uh, protein selection for um, the American consumer. So we really looked into pastured poultry, did a lot of research, read some books and um, we came up with a system where um, we have 10 by 12 foot mobile coops, two foot tall. Um, we put about 60 to 65 birds per coop um, at three weeks old. From zero to three weeks, they're raised in a um, climate-controlled brooder, pretty much red heat lamps. Um, we use dry bedding, wood chips. And then from three to five weeks, they're uh, out on pasture in which um, they move every day in those 10 to 12-foot coops. Um, they do get a non-GMO corn and soy supplement. But with that that lifestyle, we're getting a, you know, a very healthy, um, we're getting clean air, sunlight, and then any sort of uh, green material or insects they can graze on that land. And then, like you said, the manure coming out the backside, we're getting great nitrogen deposits from that chicken manure. So we really try to concentrate our poultry um, on some of our infertile areas, we would call. Um, on the new property, the 153-acre property, part of that was mined for gravel. So it was, it was stripped of topsoil. You know, we had maybe in spots we have one to two inches and then you are in subsoil you're in gravel so we're really putting nitrogen down in that area and then we're hitting it once a year and then that's it so uh this year we raised about 850 birds and we hit about seven acres of pasture with once a day moves and we're seeing really good growth rates of grass behind the chickens because that nitrogen's feeding those grasses and that's you know, um, we need a lot of nitrogen to grow a lot of grass. So if we can't do it with um, nitrogen-fixing plants like, you know, red clovers, um, uh, birds with trefoil, alfalfa, um, then we try to do it with the chickens and just get that soil jump started and, you know, hopefully get some good microbial action there. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I think that's one of the key things I want people to listen to is, you know, there's an option here for reclaiming, you know, depleted sites, et cetera. And, you know, the introduction of, you know, these, I guess we'll call them, you know, mobile, what did you call them? What was the term you used? Mobile coops? Yeah, just mobile coops. These mobile coops. And this is, I thought this was extremely interesting. I've seen larger operations, but, you know, you basically have a rope tied to a coop and you move it and you move it so many feet, 
you know, so often. What's what's the interval of movement on those particular coops? So they're moving, they're moving every day. So a new ten by twelve uh, square footage, one hundred twenty foot square foot every day, and then we run them in a. If you could visualize a, a checkerboard, they're in a diagonal pattern, and then that allows for any because we're we're very hilly on our farm. We don't have really much level um, elevation. So if we run them in that diagonal pattern, then any uh, surface water um, won't take uh, manure from one coop into the other because they're on that diagonal pattern. And they're, they're hitting about, um, uh, so for five weeks, that seven days, you know, 35 days, uh, um, and I think you're hitting uh, about uh, one acre per um, 110 birds uh, in their life cycle. So, like I said, we did about seven acres with 850 birds this year. So, you know, when you're looking at the soil, just for people that, you know, observe, and, and you, you kind of explain kind of the pasture mix you have there, you're noticing, and, and you're legume heavy at that point, what are, you, what are you recognizing from the soil composition? You know, are you starting to see a little more dark matter? What, what does it look like when you, you pick up the ground and, and take a look at it? Because I think we're talking kind of stony, bony, I don't remember if when I looked at your ground, was it like shale clay kind of, I don't remember your landscape exactly. Um, what are you seeing as, as kind of like the, uh, how's it reconciling the, the ground and what are you visually seeing when you're taking a look at everything? The 80 acre piece, we've been using our operating procedures on that for, this was our sixth season. Um, and our new 153 acre piece, which is that mine gravel area, um, we've been on, this was our third season. Definitely two different um, structures because that one was stripped of topsoil. Um, on the 80-acre piece, we're seeing really good, um, dark, rich soil, and it's it's very uh, porous. It's not compacted. Um, it's it's allowing for water filtration. It's it's allowing for oxygen to get down in there. And then on that 153-acre piece where we had an area that was strip mined, we're seeing great returns. Um, not so much as soil thickness, but we're seeing some good activity with earthworms. We are seeing some rich topsoil starting to take place on top. But then you could just see the difference in the, the grasses as far as the green nature after a rain event. Um, where we frost seeded uh, some red clover to get some nitrogen-fixing legumes on there. And then also we're running these chickens. We're seeing a, a big response in the grass growth. So kind of above the soil, but we're seeing really good response to that. And what's great about this chicken operation, like I said, 10 by 12 coop, you can scale up. You know, if, if you're running a food plot where you just want to raise 50 chickens for your family for the year, you can do that with one coop. But if you, you know, maybe have your son or daughter who really likes being on the land, who wants to, you know, sell a couple chickens here or there, you can build two or three of these coops for, you know, one coop, brand new material. It's like about $300. So you don't really have much investment in it. What do you think about introducing chickens in the forest? We've got, you know, these degraded landscapes and, you know, particularly in areas where they're trying to increase fertility and, and obviously the resident plant life. What do you think about introducing chickens in that example? I mean, so a chicken, you know, the, the native habitat of a chicken is the jungles of Asia. So they would probably do great. And they also 
offer some great um, mobile infrastructure. You can get poultry netting with energizers to keep all your predators out. And then we actually have a, a goose with our laying hens because our laying hens are in a mobile uh, coop on wheels that we pull with a tractor. And then we set up a electro netting around for about, I think it's about a quarter of acre um, for a hundred laying hens. And this allows us to keep predators out, but keep the birds in. And it's and, and we're getting a uh, real good uh, response as far as their interaction with the soil. So I think that's a great idea because the infrastructure is there to keep them safe, keep them in, and then you can really adjust the structure, the shape of where you want to run them to these wooded areas. Yeah, and I was just thinking that would be pretty conducive to folks trying to, you know, increase, you know, their volume of, you know, manure across the landscape that's a little more naturalized and. It would be consumed rapidly by, you know, the the resident microbes and um, insects, et cetera, in those particular areas. And, you know, I think, you know, chicken manure specifically has, you know, a, a pretty good carb-nitrogen ratio, which breaks down a lot faster than some of your traditional manures, you know, whether it's pig manure or cow manure, et cetera. So just, just thinking about that just out loud. All right, I want to go in a slightly different direction and, you know, so we've, we've hit on chickens, we've hit on cattle, let's switch over and let's talk about pigs. And I think a lot of people are going to be a little turned off maybe by this conversation, but I think it's important to think about pigs. And I, I did introduce this in a different podcast that I did, you know, this year, as I talked about a client that I had worked with, and we had integrated pigs on their particular property in these paddocks and in a forested area with a lot of vegetation. And we used really the pigs to be, oh, um, I don't know the best way to explain it, but they were eating the herbaceous material at a rate. And and this is like a low number of pigs across this 50 acres and trying to deplete the volume of vegetation. And we also had integrated in this particular uh, stand, you know, we had um, hard, hard maple. So it was a sugar maple bush essentially where they were, trying to produce maple, we want to remove some of the vegetation, and they want to integrate livestock. So that was a way that we could do that. But there's also harm in that. I've also seen them integrate pigs into larger pastured areas and essentially use them as rototillers, you know, if you didn't want to till up your ground. And my goodness, the volume of manure they produce is ridiculous. And, you know, if you get a good rotation, I've heard of like a potato rotation with garlic, and then they go into perennial rotation, um, you know, killing um those particular plants do well in those conditions and there's just kind of a sequence of of of, of plants that you want to consider just to minimize some of the negatives with the pig manure so i kind of want to go into your operations with you know pigs and and how you integrate them and what are your thoughts on integrating pigs particularly in forest lands or maybe an open pasture so our goal with the pork operation is to um kind of transform a wooded um bramble area that was once pasture on our farm the original 80 acres but it was allowed to be grown up so we have a lot of um, hawthorn um, we have some scrub apple uh, you know just just some non-producing uh, uh, trees um, so our goal was to go in there move these pigs around very intensively so that's the one thing about the pig uh, you have to move it very fast and you have to manage it very closely um we we 
give our pig paddocks about two to three days of uh, access. And then depending on rain or, or drought, we can slow that down or speed that up. If you get a lot of rain, they're probably moving every day because they're very intrusive. All we want to do in that wooded area with them is just aerate the soil. We want to make it look like a, a seed bed that's ready to be planted. Um, we don't want to moonscape it. We don't want to get below the topsoil into the subsoil. We just want to aerate that topsoil. And then we uh, broadcast a seed about 12 hours before we move the pigs to the next paddock. We use, we've been using rye, um, just, a, just a cereal rye, because that is pretty cheap and it grows really well. And we're seeing this rye really grow well behind the pigs. So long term, we could graze that with our cattle and, and you know, the drought season or going into winter. And then um, we're also putting some sort of um, cover crop on that soil that was just aerated by the pigs. And we're only touching that ground once a year with the pigs and getting out of there. Um, so some other long-term uh, plans for this area is to, to go in. We've been taking firewood out, so I need mainly dead ash. Um, you know, and a walnut isn't doing good on our property for some reason. I, I don't know if they're just getting um over canopied by some of our cherries and our maples but uh we're trying to open it up to get some walnut black walnut back going and then um we're taking out those uh hawthorns and those scrub apples that are they're starting to be succeeded over by the hardwoods as well so we're trying to convert this area into a silvo pasture so we can run the pigs through it and then we also can graze the cattle through it yeah i think that's interesting because i i think that's the one thing where you have these vegetative issues you, you talked earlier about a lot of briars and, and again a good food source for deer good cover source for you know some of the animals that, that we were talking about earlier but you know it becomes a little bit unmanageable and and the pig is a way to manage certain vegetation as as our cattle and you know you can utilize cattle at certain points in time and i think one of the things you mentioned at, at the inception is you don't have your your animals in the fields when it's you know, the weather gets bad here and the moisture level of the ground, you're worried about pugging, you're worried about, you know, just basically limiting the infiltration and deoxygenating the soil. So you don't have the level of water intrusion that you want. You know, what's your philosophy there? And I, I also want you to talk about, you know, I know you do some bale grazing and I think that's important to think about the benefit of bale grazing, particularly in the landscape and in conditions where it might be a little more wet. So our yearly schedule is based off the growing season. So we're, our goal is to graze uh, seven months of standing forages. So that's usually 1st of May until um, about the 1st of December. We usually get in, we, we've been um, grazing uh, right around second, right around Thanksgiving we usually get to, and then we'll start um, either supplementing feed with uh, dry hay or um, high moisture baleage. Um, and then, as we start seeing more moisture and we're, um, our forages, our standing forages are, are consumed, we really try to get them into our, our pack barns. So we've built a new barn and then we've converted an old barn to a deep bedding pack, which will start out with about 12 inches of uh, some sort of carbonaceous material, whether it's usually straw we buy or um, sawdust we buy from a local mill down the road. Now we're bringing the cattle, this is mainly cattle, and we do raise some uh, pigs in the winter on this deep bedding. 
we br we're trying to get the cattle off the land before it gets too wet and we're you know degrading that soil by like you said pugging it up or we're making uh, high impact lanes where we have 80 to 90 head if they all follow each other to one spot right. they're gonna they're gonna put a goat path there yeah so we're really we're really reducing that we're getting them in these barns and this um, deep bedding will grow up to two to three, four foot tall, and then we'll pull it out and high pile it. So um, while the cattle are in there stomping it down, um, it's anaerobic. You know, there's no oxygen in there. When we pull it out, it becomes aerobic, and it can uh, decompose to be good compost for our hay ground. When we get frozen or frost in the ground, then we will go to what we call as bale grazing, where we unroll hay on some of our infertile areas again, and um, we do this with dry hay. So any sort of uh, seed heads that are in that dry hay, they'll be stomped in the, you know, they'll be placed or stomped in the snow um, with the cows. And then their urine and manure is left over to uh, offer fertility for that next growing season. Our goal is to be in the barn 75 days and then bale grazing 75 days throughout those five months of um of uh, no growth on our pastures yeah and let's hope we have some hard ground for you guys to continue that you know because it's been a little bit wet and uh warmer than it really has been in years past so the next question i have for you with your composting operation and i think it's really interesting because you talked about adding sawdust which is probably to soak up some of the urine that's my assumption i don't work in this field so this is a little bit different from from my area but when you pull it out and you build kind of the either in a bin form or just just in a stack form, are you trying to keep it dry and out of the sun, or do you want it? How do you, how are you trying to manage the compost piece of this once you pull some of this out of the barn? So our sawdust and our straw—that's our carbon—and to get a compost, you need a nitrogen-carbon ratio, and then our manure and our urine—that's all our nitrogen. When we pull this out. Um, we just stack it in probably six foot tall by 10 foot wide uh, windrows or, you know, high piles, whatever you want to call it. And at this time, we don't have ability to keep it out of, we don't have it covered right now. Okay. So, so it's getting, it's getting rain, it's getting sun, but um, you know, I just, we, we were maxed out. So we had some area, of compost that was there for about 12 months and we just spread it on our fields here two mornings ago and i would have to say when you pull you know we're aiming for 150 degrees internally in that um and when you get into that that pile you're just seeing unlimited amount of uh, earthworms so th that's that's a good sign that we're getting good uh, decomposition and there's there's oxygen in that pile for uh, microbes to be living uh, so that's that's really what we're aiming for our long-term plan is to increase our, our bedding pack uh, barn surface area so we can store more compost under, you know, under roof so we're not getting unlimited rains on it and, right. you know, try to get it out of the sun as well, maybe. You know, one suggestion I want to make for folks, and, and I know you do this as well, is we're talking about bale grazing. You know, there's an opportunity if you have a lot of vegetation you're trying to deplete that vegetation on your landscape is you bale graze kind of in, in more of these forested land settings and then introduction is some of this compost, putting compost on the landscape. You know, not a horrible idea at all. And if you're building large compost piles or you have access to this, this would be a huge advantage to your forestland settings. And I think a lot of people miss out on, you know, opportunity to kind of, you know, I guess uh, 
fence post to fence post or you know stonewall to stonewall thinking you know, more holistically of what you can do to improve the vegetation it's introducing some of these concepts across you know your landscape so i think those are just kind of important ideas that integrate kind of this farming cattle pig you know operation and i think a lot of people don't think about this when it comes to this uh, holistic maybe more regenerative and smarter kind of approach you know with real purpose behind it so you know th- this is what has got me so interested in introducing new concepts kind of to, to the listenership so i'm going to ask you this question I, I, and I, this is an opinion piece of it you know i know you deer hunt and with these cattle operations and there's a lot of negativity around cattle and and, and um, interactions with deer and, and i certainly see there's a social aspect you know, there's been studies done of, you know, certain distances that deer have a tendency to stay away from cattle. It depends on the type of cattle and its personality. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And obviously, the segmentation or fragmentation because of the fencing. But one of the concepts is moving these cattle in different orientations and getting them out of key areas where, you know, maybe next to, you know, a forest field setting or woodland setting or savanna type setting or, you know, again, that that'd be in the Midwest or, you know, a, a shrubland setting is is giving, you know, a food source that was grazed by cattle at one point in time, or maybe, again, you know, tilled by, by the pigs, and, you know, you, you're seeding into those areas, you're providing, you know, preferred food, you know, for deer. What do you think of an operation where you could have deer integrated into the landscape, where you could have some hunting opportunities in cattle? How do you think that would work fundamentally in, in your operation? So what we observe is by not overgrazing and, and leaving some residual there, especially the, the clovers, the legumes right now, you know, we have a herd of like 12 to, to 14 doe that, that are hanging out right now on our meadows. You know, they, they come out about, you know, two hour and a half before darkness and they're grazing. We also see a lot of activity through the summer in that rye area in the um, silver pastures where, you know, You'll see anywhere from five to eight deer um, grazing when we go in there on that rye. So, you know, the ruminants as well, they definitely don't hang out with the cow herd. Um, if we're bale grazing, <laughs> yeah. you know, if we're grazing in bale grazing in paddock A and the deer are over in paddock C, they're, they're not going inter, to intertwine. But then if we move the cows over to paddock D, we might see some deer go back over to paddock A. So, we don't, we don't see, we definitely see some uh, interaction going on as far as we're seeing some good deer populations on our land. I mean, you know, 236 acres. Out, like I said, that 12 to 14 doe, I, we see pretty quite often. There's some yearlings in there. You know, anytime you can provide good green matter to a ruminant, it's, it's going to benefit it somehow. So even if you went to, a, you know, uh, some turnips or a, a, any sort of food plot, which you could select for forages that the deer will really like. I think you can implement that with either, you know, if you're, if you're bale grazing intensely with the cows, you could go in in the spring and do a cover crop and then, you know, just drag that over or uh, same with the pigs seeding behind them. So there's some good opportunities to increase that optimal green forage for a whitetail diet. Yeah. And I think it's important and it's good from a farmer's perspective to give you know, a suggestion and, and you can use these cattle operations to fragment the landscape to move deer around too. So the fencing operation, 
the use of cattle to offset, you know, where deer want to reside, et cetera. The integration of that could help your hunting system, you know, and, and it's important to think about in that way because it's kind of integrating both in the landscape, not abusing one or the other. And to your point earlier, which I think was huge, and there's been multitude of studies on cattle and, you know, what's the appropriate amount of grazing, you know, to not offset the forage opportunities. And obviously, you know, deer as ruminants and their types of diets, more, you know, higher quality, you know, higher protein, you know, they're going to prefer, you know, more browse forage type opportunities. Whereas cattle, they tend to have a, a higher focus on grasses. You know, some of these browse focused areas that we develop, you could integrate ryegrass and, and people just bash ryegrass, but, you know, ryegrass and clovers really do well and are preferential for, for cows and deer. So there's a, there's a crop you could integrate that would, would benefit both to, to kind of Jacob's point. So you could develop a blend that would give you the balance of interest between, you know, cattle and, and deer and, and just something to think about if, if, if you want them to integrate in, in some capacity, at least on the landscape. You know, that's just, just some additional thoughts I just, just had offhand. Anyhow, I think this is a really interesting topic. And I think what I wanted to present here was the concept of smart, intelligent farming, integrating animals on the landscape, looking how it benefits, looking at the measurement techniques, you know, from the example of the earthworms, we, we talked about cow pies depleting, you know, the time surrounding that, not overgrazing, integration of, of a, a herd that isn't overconsuming, you know, overgrazing the landscape. And then, you know, some of the other com concepts of integrating, uh, you, you brought up the term silvopasture, and another topic that, you know, maybe we can talk about down the road, because you're thinking about some new projects on your particular property, which really overlays, because I do, you know, kind of agroforestry with some of my clients where we're integrating crops and trees. And then in a similar sense, you're integrating maybe some silver pasture concepts where you're using species like honey locusts, mulberries, you know, some plants like that are that they can benefit the wildlife, the cattle, you know, provide a food source, you know, the ultimate fodder component is what we would call it, where it's just this well laid out design and architecture where you're photosynthesizing, you know, you're, you're collecting sun with these solar panels and, you know, essentially you're integrating an opportunity of water collection, water infiltration, and the resident plant life just explodes and your animals are, are benefiting from that. I don't know if it's something you want to talk about briefly, a future project and something you're working on, but, you know, what you're looking at for the future because you're forward thinking and that's really important for folks to be thinking ahead. Yeah, so we're looking at um, incorporating, like you said, some some honey locusts in a some sort of gridded pattern on a nine-acre paddock we have, and then a twelve-acre paddock that's pretty much not ever going to be hay ground. So we can really go after optimizing it as grazing ground, and we're you know we're we're always trying to invest in which we're going to see good returns down the road. Uh, Agriculture has been so constricted in this year's yield, this year's inputs, you know, just enough to make money to get by. And that's one thing, too, that's that's never stressed is we were we were brought into this at zero. You know, we started with zero cows, zero chickens, zero pigs, and we've been able to educate ourselves um, on how we wanted to uh, introduce uh, plans to benefit our land long term. So 
our next step is is really going after the silvopasture area. Um, we're going to try to uh, incorporate these honey locusts so we can get some maybe uh, some yield of uh, uh, some feed quality out of the pods that are dropped. We're going to get some uh, increase of, of shade and then maybe also fix some nitrogen in the soil. This will just allow us to have another tool of management. So we can let it rest maybe 60 days starting in June. And then when we hit a drought or we hit 90 degrees in August, we can take the herd up there. We got good shade, low stress on the animals. And then we have a good, um, you know, biodiverse area to graze. Uh, so very, we're very, um, you know, uh, new at this as far as silvopasture, but uh, we're seeing a lot of grazing operations and a, and a lot of good studies being being motivated towards this uh, tool for farming. Yeah, and I think the one thing to mention is in these concepts that you're introducing, there's a lot of overlap to all animals. You know, building some of these polycultures kind of around like earlier you're talking about black walnuts. Well, there's hardy pawpaws that do well because they have the shade. You know, they produce a fodder, which are good for pigs. I mean, there's a lot of things you can introduce in the landscape that build interest in areas. And that's the key point of it is, you know, you're building good fertility and high interest points, in, in my case, is for hunting purposes, but in your case, is to benefit the animal. And then long-term, obviously, you're going to harvest that animal. And it's just, it's thinking more consciously about some of these things. So, you know, I appreciate your time. I wanted to give a chance for you to talk to the audience just a little bit about, you know, I know you do a lot of consumer type, you know, engagements. You don't sell to Although you probably sell the restaurants. I, I know you do that. But like you, the consumer engagement is a big part of your business. Do you sell out of state or do people have to come local to you? How does that work with your business? So we do uh, sell out of state, but that's uh, that's all with farm pickup. So we don't ship. I don't know if we will. I, I, I kind of – my wife and I are really big into, you know, a local community. Um, you know, local business supports not only – that that business but the community around it we we do sell to um uh, four restaurants all within 30 miles of our farm and then we're at the cny regional market on saturdays in syracuse but we're really trying to you know improve that relationship with the consumer um, i think that is just not talked about enough in this country right now is just positive relationships you know whether it is you know whitetail hunters and elk hunters you know sharing you know, the, you know, two different types of hunts, but, you know, same hunters going after it, uh, really creating a relationship on different insights on how they hunt. Same with, with farming. We're trying to, to offer a good product to our consumers. We're trying to be transparent, come out to the farm, pick it up, look at our daily operations, you know, provide farm tours for people who are interested. And then, uh, we also have a social media presence so we can, um, update and post, you know, daily activities to see what we're going on. Um, and that's one thing in the ag uh, industry that's not talked about enough is that, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, bad sentiment is towards the farmer, but, you know, the packers are what are driving this agricultural industry and the consumer wants a cheap product and the packer is going to find the easiest way to get a cheap product. And unfortunately, the the conventional farmers are just you know part of that structure so it's hard for them to pivot any way they can that's why we really like the consumer 
to be educated for us. So when we're selling them a direct product that, you know, they could, they can give us reviews and we can determine, you know, our business model and how to give them the best product. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about you and, and obviously you're, you're focused on your consumers and the, the health of the product that you're providing to them. And I think people need to think more about that. And uh, we've had a few podcasts surrounding that particular topic. You know, I think it's important for folks to recognize the value you get. You pay for value sometimes. And, you know, that's that's what I'm all about, high quality and high return. And, and this is one of those things where you need to be conscious of the food that you're ingesting. And I was impressed with your operation. I think, you know, people have a chance to go tour your farm. I know you give tours. And uh, I did one of those tours, and I think it would be, very healthy for folks to take a look at, you know, where your food's coming from. And, you know, I, I think the social media presence and stuff that you show, you know, your operation, you're out there working every single day, you've got a new project every day. And, you know, you're showing you can do sometimes more with less. And you're smart about every investment, like most people, and you're making sure that you're getting the most bang for your buck out of, you know, every activity that you have on a day to day basis. And that just shows a lot about you know, your planning and, and focus on the future. So I appreciate you being on the podcast, Jacob. Um, hopefully we hear more from you in the future. And I, I'm happy we could introduce some new concepts here on the podcast because I, I think we're so deer focused all the time. This is a good chance to people for people to be a little more reflective on, you know, the goods that are out there and integrating some new concepts on your landscape for the betterment of not just yourself, you know, people around you and obviously kind of the animals that we're trying to promote. So I uh, appreciate your time and uh, look forward to talk again. Yeah, thanks so much, John. I really appreciate what you do as well. All right, brother. Talk soon. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.